0: Escape, from plan A. A. Escape, escape.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host, Diana, and today I have Yo Pong and Michelle uh, joining us again.
2: Hi, how's it going?
1: Hello. And uh, first time guest, Jules.
2: My name
0: is Jules. I live just outside of D.C. I work in allied health and been in that field for about 10 years. Um, I've also done some work in Haiti, primarily around public health supplies, Um, some direct care.
1: Awesome. We all have uh, experience in the scientific and public health industries. And today we're just going to be giving everybody a rundown of the COVID vaccines that are uh, in uh, clinical trials right now. Uh, All the different kinds of vaccines, you know, like what the clinical trials are and what's going on with them. And maybe uh, we'll move on to like kind of the social ramifications, kind of the deeper layers of how things are and why they are and what they'll mean for us and for the world probably in the next couple of years.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's important to note, like we're recording this on November 18th. um, So there's like a lot of news around. Uh, the Pfizer one and the Moderna one, both of which are said to have 95% efficacy, but also like COVID is raging in the U.S. now. Like we're breaking old summer records for how bad COVID is right now. Um, so it's just, it's very much in the news at the moment. And then, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to to um, give just a brief intro, because I think a lot of people don't uh, either know the different types of vaccines, why they're different, or or um, maybe we can start there.
3: Yeah, I think, all well- there's so much information out there, and there are actually a lot of vaccine candidates out there. but I think you know a lot of science reporting is pretty poor, so I don't think people have the greatest sense of, I guess, what the timeline of all of this has been, aside from basically press releases from these big companies. There are over 180 vaccine candidates in either preclinical um, studies or clinical trials. But what we're looking at mainly are the vaccine candidates that are in phase three, which means they are closest to being approved for usage in the general public. I think one thing a lot of people wonder is how we've gotten here so quickly. Um, I think that's important to talk about to both be wary of what it means when a clinical trial process has been sped up and where safety protocols are still being followed as they should be, so that these vaccines are not just effective but also safe. I don't even know where to start sometimes because there's like so much information to go over and I don't want to just talk forever. <laughs> but I, I think I think I think maybe like a good starting point is to explain how a vaccine works or how this vaccine is looking like it's going to work. Back in February, the um, coronavirus or the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein was sequenced and now this is a protein that's on the envelope of the virus and it's how when the virus enters your body is able to enter your cell and start replicating all of the phase 3 vaccines now are making use of this spike protein by either the vaccine itself is the spike protein or is introducing the spike protein into your body so that your body can start producing antibodies Against the spike protein so that if you do get exposed to the actual virus, your body already has antibodies to have an immune response.
1: Yeah. And if I
3: recall
1: that process to just like sequence the spike protein, sequence the entire um, SARS-CoV-2 genome, as well as purify the recombinant protein in China, that was like a super expedited process too. It was like, I think in January, like in late January, they had already had all of that done and published. Everything is so crazy expedited. Like, um, it yeah. usually takes fifteen years, yes, to develop a vaccine, like validate, um, approve, approve a vaccine, like all all the way from like development to, um, FDA approval and like mass distribution. But like for this one, they're trying to get it out, um, within like a year or so.
3: Yeah, like you said, and you know, Chinese scientists had already sequenced the virus back in January and the spike protein by February. That whole process is basically accelerated by several years what other vaccine development would have needed all of this discovery process. In addition to that, a lot of vaccine development is limited by funding. Like everything in the messed up healthcare system, it all comes down to funding and money and no drug company is going to want to develop a vaccine if they can't make a profit out of it. And so this is one case where we can see that if money isn't an object, there is a lot that can be accomplished in a much shorter period of time.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think also we should point out that like Chinese scientists did the world a huge favor by reporting and like doing all of the preliminary studies like so quickly because I think if it were up to Western countries to do this they wouldn't have started until April
3: we weren't even barely recognizing it until April right
1: so. <laughs> yeah
2: did one of you want to go through the the individual phases or I mean I can do it too
1: oh yeah yeah please go for it
2: sure so um, the phase one clinical trials is basically just initial safety like if you give it to um, healthy individuals, are you going to have super adverse side effects? And that's that's an important point to prove, not only because, well, you don't you want to make it worse than COVID, right? But that's also um, the reason it comes first is that actually for the most part, most, not all, but most uh, negative side effects that come from a vaccine often come like very close to the time of injection versus like a year later. So that's phase one um and that's usually not that many people it's like a uh, less like usually fewer than 100 individuals normally
3: it's often just like a couple dozen yeah like it's very small amount yeah yeah
2: and i mean they they often <laughs> this is stupid but they often like ask college students right for, for like non like global pandemic ones they'll ask college students like hey do you want 50 bucks for like a thing to to do a, a phase one clinical trial like it's a very um yeah small number and they're just recruiting volunteers to try it out And phase two is where the efficacy starts to be tested, Um, a couple hundred participants, so not like broad scale so that, you know, population wide differences aren't necessarily there yet. Um, And I think this one also takes a while. Each one usually takes a couple of years. So phase two is two years normally, and you're uh, looking at immunogenicity, so uh, the effects on the immune system. Also to determine the appropriate doses, the appropriate uh, vaccine regimens. Like for instance, the two big ones that we're going to talk about today, both require two shots. And then finally phase three is the broad like, I think these two have like 30,000 participants. Um, And so it's randomized. So some people will get the placebo, some people will get the actual one, and then you'll see how effective and safe it is. This is where the longer term adverse effects are really looked at because you have a large enough sample size, Um, usually lasts a year. Um, sometimes even longer than that, it, it's overlapping in that the phase three and phase two will start before phase one in the case of COVID. But also uh, this is where some of the skepticism that, that some of us have uh, being people of color, I think comes into play because for, I think both Moderna and uh, AstraZeneca, two of the big candidates had to like really try hard to recruit minorities and they like paused their studies wrong because they didn't have enough minority participation. Um, And so that's where they're really trying to, in theory, look for um, effects across different populations.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of the vaccine candidates are having that issue. Um, In the end, they were able to recruit a pretty diverse participant pool um, based on the data that I've looked at. But I know like, you know, right now there are still other phase three drugs in test right now. And I know here in Nashville, the Janssen vaccine has started recruiting. And I've noticed on Twitter, the Kurdish professionals group in Nashville, and one of the um, Tennessee immigrant groups were hosting webinars with the Nashville um, health chair to explain trials, vaccine trials. So I I think they're still trying, like, I think every vaccine candidate um, trial has had to make an effort to recruit minority participants.
2: Yeah. And then, um, Jules, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that, because I don't know, is this, is this common? I don't really follow a lot of FDA stuff outside of a global pandemic. Like the, the difficulty finding uh, minority participants or just getting a, a like diverse enough pool, things like that.
0: I mean, I can tell you from pretty much March onward, I've seen nothing but press releases from all the HBCUs, at least the ones I like actively follow, trying to get young participants. And that has a lot of historical concern from Tuskegee, obviously, but there's also been other cases of younger students, um, particularly in foster care systems, juvenile detention centers being used as t- test subjects. So there's going to be an inherent concern, especially in the Black community. Like We have our suspicions against anything government-mandated, government-related, especially when it comes to medical situations. And it's not just, you know, vaccines, but that's an, a very obvious one, especially anything to do with viruses, bacteria.
1: Did you say that HBCUs are um, putting these calls out?
0: Yeah. I know Southern definitely is. Hampton involved in the process. They're actually putting out calls for test subjects. but I know they're involved with either administering them or manufacturing them or testing. I, I'm not clear on where they are. I'd have to go and find that release. Um, but it's they're in one of the pool of organizations that tend to follow.
1: Is that, is that a common thing for the HBCUs to be doing that? Or is this um, unprecedented?
0: No, I mean, they're, they've always been involved. Like that's Mm -hmm. is is often under spoken about is that a lot of times when the U S government needs representation in think of any government agency from FBI, department of justice, you know, they want to up their numbers for, for anything, really. They just, they start with HBCUs. Often Howard is like the top recruited school for a lot of government positions because one, it's in Washington, D.C. Um, and two, they have like a pipeline of people who've either worked for the federal government or want to be involved with any administration or with any government agency. So it just gives them a good, you know, they can open up a door and basically have, you know, a bunch of well-educated, uh Black people who you know want to have a good career, but the idea of them being tested at this day and age is it was interesting when I saw that come out but then there was also this release i want to say in November where Trump was getting a lot of flack about um it was it was before like all the protests and everything started, but he was getting a lot of flack for i can't remember what it was specifically um but it was at the at something specific that knocked on his door essentially, and he green lighted green lit a bunch of funding for hbcus and then also created a pipeline for recruiting for fbi and cia from the from like three or four specific hbcus like they created like a, a backdoor to like basically train a bunch of people and bring them into these agencies so it's going to be interesting going forward to see how that plays out and, and that's not necessarily for the you know health public sector but they are also funding a lot more medical and dental programs um specifically Howard and Meharry, too. So that's bad.
1: In terms of like gathering people for clinical trials, do they usually go to HBCUs for trial participants? Or is that a new thing for COVID specifically?
0: I mean, it's definitely been being done for COVID. But it's always been a, a thing, right? So like Tuskegee is the Tuskegee experiment is the most known, right? That took place in Tuskegee, Alabama, at Tuskegee University. Um, the medical staff there, the head—not the head nurse, but the head nurse—that was interacting with the people in that community was at, from that university, and they also had a lot of the staff that crossed over from the university who were working at the federal government level. Um, there's like there's just a long history of staff at a lot of HBCUs are used as kind of like a front line to interacting with. With the black community because a lot of like you'll see a lot of um areas where there's lack of success usually relies on federal government underpinning and you can look at like you know military bases federal outposts like you know actual buildings for administrations um but for this i, I mean we haven't had an exposure like this since probably polio and at that point you know hbcus weren't like really they they didn't really come back into like a really full popularity until i want to say like the 80s 90s right that bill cosby wave of like making <laughs> a popular thing like they've always been around like they've been around since 1864 i think mm-hmm. yeah and you know the uh, oberlin would always admit um black students but like they started getting founded after you after the um civil war and ever since then it's always been a place where there has been Interaction with a federal with the federal government, and then also opposition against it in certain areas because it's like a lot of these organizations are really funded with federal funds, you know, like most universities, but these ones rely on it even more so, just because wealth in America is really concentrated, not in the black community, you know, it's in primarily in the white community, um, so a lot of them rely on federal funding. That I means contracts, you know, you got to do stuff with, and that's and that's not to say that it's like an in. Apparently, bad thing, but you're, you're making a deal with the devil in, a, in your own way. So to keep the doors open, to keep the students educated, you know, you have to do things that are part of the deal. But the student thing, that is very interesting, But because like I saw that press release come out and I thought that was very strange. But a lot of them are in cities with huge bo- black population. So you're probably going to get people who are in the area getting paid, you know, some nominal amount to be a test subject. And that's, that's nothing new.
3: Yeah, here in Nashville, um, Meharry, which is an HBCU, it's a medical college. They are actually running two vaccine trials. Um, I'm not sure if they've started them yet. Um, I think they have started recruiting, but they're definitely part of that landscape of HBCUs reaching out to minority communities, particularly Black and um, Latinx populations. I've seen several press releases and news articles where officials running the trial are trying to get people to participate in these trials.
2: I didn't look into the numbers of like what number of or what percentage of minorities of of each specific race was necessary in these trials, um, but I mean, one of them is is from Pfizer, and Pfizer has a pretty pretty poor history when it comes to doing the right thing. Um, and and two is um, there was an article recently that was actually from uh, several different studies, uh, like nineteen different studies or so. That they they compiled data from that show that like. Black people are two times more likely to get like affected by COVID, just from I think it was mostly from a virulence standpoint. That there was something to do with like occupational hazards, and then Asians were 1.5 times as likely. And so, if we're more at risk, and we're not confident that the trials are done in a way that uh, appropriately assess the risk of a vaccine in our populations compounded by the history of how the healthcare system treats people of color, especially black people, you know, the skinny trial is um, infamous. The, uh, the incident with Henrietta Lacks is now, now well known because of the Oprah movie. So, (laughs) I mean, yeah, sad that it took that, right. Uh, But yeah, I mean, that that's where a lot of, you know, the skepticism sort of comes from. Obviously, we want this to succeed because COVID's destroying our communities. And I think we want, want to see this over soon. Um, but that's just, like, why we're skeptical.
1: Yeah, and there was also, um, like, a lot of the uh, gynecology science that we have today was, like, developed by that dude. I forgot what his name was, but he would just, like experiment do all of his experiment on like slave women
0: yeah i was i, was, I, I got i named someone else i was uh, i was thinking samuel cartwright but he did he was another uh slaughterer of people i was thinking uh james james sims he's in uh what the carolinas and then they had his a statue up in front of the up in new york in front of like the sloan kettering hospital
1: right yeah i think somebody was trying to get that statue taken down or maybe they already have taken it down But, like, he would experiment on these women without anesthesia because the common knowledge at the time was that, like, black people didn't experience as much pain as, uh, like, white people did. Or, you know, he just was lazy and didn't want to spend the money on it.
3: That's actually still in some medical textbooks now. Wow. What? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I... That... Yeah. Wait, that black... People
1: don't experience as much yeah. pain. Are you fucking kidding me?
3: Oh. Yeah. No,
0: stuff is it's baked into like most medical schools. It's like, if you talk to, so I have MDs in my family. Um, one who's much older, who came in and didn't go into medical school here. They did like that baccalaureate program, and then one who went through medical school and doctorate program. And he's like, look, You'll get well trained, but you will have to deal with a mountain of shit um There's a, just a lot of institutional disrespect and of entire racialized people and of genders like and it's baked in from a lot of stuff that was cooked up in like the you know 17, 16, 1800s to justify mistreatment it's It's pretty terrible.
1: Like when medical schools in uh, America were, I mean, when there were just like more of them and they were trying to train more doctors, they didn't have enough cadavers. So these people would just rob graves and sell them to medical schools to be used as cadavers. And they would never take wealthy or middle class white graves, you know, because those people would actually like sue or like get the police involved. So, they would go to black cemeteries and dig up those those people's graves because they were they didn't have the power to fight back and the one time that they did it was it because they did it was because it was so egregious that these grave diggers these grave robbers were just like digging in broad daylight and just leaving the coffins open and so like the black communities would actually would go and complain but only to say like please do this more respectfully they just didn't have any rights to like even keep their families' bodies buried
2: horrifying but not surprising yep
0: pretty much it's part of the reason why there is like a distrust of any institutional power because you kind of you need those resources um, but you also have to deal with people who don't see you as human, or don't respect don't respect your humanity. So even after you had your funeral rites and you're grieving, you wind up with this type of situation.
1: Yeah, after the Tuskegee experiments, um, these Harvard scientists they were like, "Oh, hey, you know what? We're gonna use the same infrastructure that we." used to create the banana republics in Central America. And we're going to, like, shuttle, like, medical equipment, build hospitals in, like, Guatemala. And we're going to do the syphilis experiments there. And, like, they did the exact same shit, okay? So, like, they were working with the Guatemalan government, you know, in the government there. They were, like, more white-passing, like, European, they had more European genealogy and they were like basically colluding with the US government and the scientists to trick the indigenous populations into being uh, research like experimental subjects. And I think that they had these scientists go into these individual communities, which were mostly mestizo. And they said, oh, you know, we just, like, need you to, like, help us with these clinical trials. But they were infecting them with syphilis. And they were just doing what they were doing to, like, black patients in the U.S. in the global south now. So, I don't know. I just feel like the vaccines that are being developed, like, I and I think we can, like, talk about this in more detail later. But I just feel like they're not for anybody except for, like, white people in The developed country, but a lot of the people that they're trying to recruit for the experiments and to test on are people of color or like, you know, people in the global south that are not really even going to benefit from the science, from the product. So it's just like resource and labor and like extraction of like your entire body for this colonial product that isn't even going to be available to you.
3: Yeah. I know the experiments that you brought up in Guatemala, they were in the 40s. And the Tuskegee experiment started in the 30s. But I'm, I'm not sure how many people know about Tuskegee. and they. But I think people think it, it was way long ago. But some of those experiments continued until the 70s
0: yeah some of those people are still alive, yeah, like the you know some people with congenital uh, yeah. some are still alive like in their fifties and sixties, but you know that's that's not gone away yeah like the 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 first one that that I can think of is the um yellow fever outbreak that were the outbreaks that were happening up and down the east coast in the seventeen hundreds right you know like America back then was basically like a swampland, people with tricornered hats you know slaughtering people and changing the whole social fabric by. You know making slavery like a real thing, but then they were also creating this logic of like actually you know black people actually don't get yellow fever. Something about them makes them immune to it and it, and it gave them a justification to say like these will be the people that will be the nurses and the maids to you know c- to care for and tend for the wealthy whites or you know normally the wealthy whites, but like not the 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 trash who live out in the the woods and everything. And so, like, this has always been there. And it's not like the poor whites are treated much better, you know, like, they got treated pretty terribly all around and wound up getting, you know, also sterilized and, you know, euthan- it's been like a eugenic problem. <laughs> I, I don't I think that's too wide of a word, but it's like, it's one of the logics of America's system is that there is going to be a eugenics element to a lot of our treatment. And if you just look at who has put this in the play, how have they got this done? What has been the end result? It doesn't play well for anyone unless you have wealth, resources, access to power, um or the ability to really like put up social walls between you and the communities you live near or in.
3: I mean that's basically our covid response, right? If you can work from home and just stay home, you're okay, but too bad if you can't.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think like early on, it didn't take very long for these stats to be apparent into the pandemic where it was like, okay, in in this state, you know, black people are only 13% of the population, but like 40% of the deaths and then in Louisiana, and it crept up everywhere. And so pretty quickly, it was tearing through communities of color far more than white communities. And obviously, we don't have stats on this because it's just like a going out thing. But like, I mean, even in the Bay Area, anecdotally, like the vast majority of people I see, like blatantly not wearing masks in public and not getting the fuck out of my way when I'm on the sidewalk, are white people. And so it's like they're Jules, you're bringing it up from you know 1700s, 1800s, and the, yeah, it's showing that that even today that that is not changing. Communities of color are being affected, and the white people don't care.
1: Yeah, and remember that French doctor who was saying like, oh, we should test our vaccines in Africa first you know, basically using them as, like, colonial test subjects uh, so that the French population or, like, the white world stays safe and, you know, like, we just we just use their bodies for, you know, like, experimentation. Still, still in 2020. So, it's, like, the same shit over and over again. And um, I think, yeah, like, with the COVID response in general, you see – that, like, the white countries, they don't do shit. They're just like, whatever, you know, every man for himself. And it leaves the POC communities and every impacted community out to drive. But then in Asia, a lot of the countries that have uh, responded really well to the COVID pandemic are, like, the more socialist countries, you know? Like, they take care of everyone, like, they just, they stamp it out and everyone is safe, period. And, like, I think even in the democratic socialist countries, you know, like um, Scandinavia, Denmark, they're not doing so hot, right?
0: The West has this um, this psychological thing called this weird complex. It's like Western, educated, industri- industrialized, rich, democratic thing where you're like, every man is an island and every man can be his own king. And it, it promotes this like weird individualism. And I'm going to use that word a lot, but like it describes it very well where truth doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. Your opinion only matters because that is the real truth. And we have a lot of language that backs up this whole thing. You know, like this, uh, you're finding your own truth. You're living your own truth. You're... And so like when you see empirical data that suggests that something might be effective, it doesn't matter because I'm my own person. The individualism has been socialized in america in a way that if you don't step out of it you really don't and it's not just america it's really the west and like a lot of places that get westernized start to get it and the ones that pause on it recognize that there is like a social social need you know to having like a society that interacts and works together and not just has like transactional relationships of like you know dominance like master slave type of situations that are largely for exploitation and don't really do anything other than you know feed that individual like it it creates individual narcissists that only get by and enjoy themselves on like that minor bit of power that they hold and i think that i hate to say it but i think that is the reason why a lot of people really want to get back to restaurants because it's not like restaurants make Great food. I'm not gonna insult people who work in the food industry. Great restaurants. I love a lot of them. But uh if it comes to me, you know, coughing and wheezing to death in a hospital where I can't like say goodbye to my family versus like getting a wonderful open faced sandwich, like <laughs>
3: Well, we're we're talking about white people who can't cook, so
0: lack of spice. Part of it is like I don't want to cook. I don't wanna have to do labor. And I think that's a lot of like the American backbone is like I don't want to have to work i want someone else to do the work for me and i want to be able to tell them to do the work for me you know like it, it it's baked in to the point i don't think i don't think one person can really do that can like really convince other people to do that so i think they'd look for like the big my big worry is like a vaccine that's moved this fast like i'm not saying that it's going to be ineffective i just don't know um and i think the the moving this fast and breaking stuff it might break black, brown, non-white people. And then they'll learn from that and then have something better for the next round. And so like, that is my real concern about this, like individual thing is like, I don't have to worry about this because we have this disposable population and we can put it on them to be subjects of, you know, whatever it fucks up. And like, I hear nightmare stories about weird stuff all the time when it comes to hospitals, like at a neighbor, probably like 10 years ago, real nice old Puerto Rican lady. And she went to the hospital because she had like a diabetic situation and she had to get, a, she was getting a leg amputated and they amputated the wrong leg. What?
1: Oh my God. Oh my God. Fucked her up
0: because she was in a good position to do anything. She was not like fifty sixties, 60s, but like you're amputee, you're not moving around. And she got like a settlement from it, but like no amount of money is going to take that away from it. So I'm like, how do you live in a world where, and this is a nice hospital, nice neighborhood. That's the type of disposability that I'm, I, it sits in the back of my head. That's what, that's what it really does.
2: Yeah.
1: Actually, one of my, one of my friends in college, she got food poisoning or something. I was like a really bad case of food poisoning. And she went to the hospital and somehow she contracted some other bacterial infection and she got sepsis and died within a week. She was young, too. She was, this was, like, a, a few years ago now, but she was in her mid-20s, you know. She had just gotten married to her, high, to her college sweetheart. She's, she's Indian. And, like, at, at the time, I was like, oh, my God, what a freak, what a crazy freak accident. This is so horrible. But now I'm like, maybe they just didn't take care of her because she's brown.
0: Yeah, that's I mean, that, that bears out when you look at so like when you look at the data for it and like I can speak a lot more because one, I just don't have the data for like I don't have the data for Asian populations. Right. Um, and I don't know. I'd love to see that how that plays out, because I know there's like big class difference. There's like um, geographic locations. I don't, I, I'd love to see how that goes when you look at like um, black poor populations tend to have lower or higher morbidity than white poor populations, like middle class than white middle class. Black upper class than white upper class, right? But then you start to see like black middle class has lower morbidity or higher morbidity than white lower class. And black upper class tends to have their morbidity is about on par with like a high school person or a high school, a white person who barely made it out of high school. So like that treatment, it's either um, we're poorly constructed or poorly treated. And I can't say that like, you know, lifestyle choices, you might get diabetes from eating poorly, but I've seen people get mistreated in the hospital. I've seen people, you know, come away not as, not as good as they should have been when going in for medical care. And I think that's something that that's all throughout.
1: Yeah. The only person that I know who has died from COVID was a black woman and she went to the hospital with a cough. She went there like three times, and each time they told her to just like go home and take some Tylenol until it was too late. She was young too. She was like my age or younger.
0: Yeah. Yeah. See, I, and so like I take stuff like this really seriously. Like I know some people who don't, and I think that might be like social immortality. You know, you think you're just going to live forever and go skydiving afterwards. But like when I saw this thing was popping up, I got my mask in January and I started buying provisions throughout the year just to like, I have enough that I will be okay for certain things. But I also live in like, I have a weird situation where I have like a very white collar job, but I live in an area that's very blue collar. So like when I talk to my neighbors, a lot of them work, you know, FedEx, um, some are Uber, Lyft drivers, you know, all that type of stuff. Some work construction and, you know, the social discipline in my neighborhood Fantastic. Everybody has their mask on. Everybody's got the gloves on. When you go like two blocks away, you see people walking their dogs, like white people walking their dogs, no masks, hanging out on the port patios and stuff. And I'm just like, God damn, what the hell is going on? And you know, my neighbors is very like, blue collar, working class, black, brown, Asian, like it's a mix, right? And it's like, I'm living in two different worlds at the same time. I remember like, maybe a month ago, I was going to, I think I was like getting my license renewed. And that was like a whole mess. I was talking to one of the guys who was saying that at his grocery store, there were like I think, 15 people got COVID working there. And a lot of it was because a lot of people just were coming in without masks, like not the people working there, but the actual like customers. So there's a disregard. And like, you know, I go to those grocery stores. I know all the workers there are You know, Ethiopian, Guatemalan, uh, we got a heavy Guatemalan population in this area just because, um, or no, El Salvadorian, sorry, Salvadorian, Um, just because like, this just, I don't know why, Uh, probably because they came over during the war in the 80s and like, this was the place where they were put, but there was a, there's a huge population around. Um, And so like, it's just, I, I live like in a universe, within a universe, and I see people acting completely different. If there was an anthropologist who came down and looked at us, they would just think we're living in like a looney tune environment.
1: Yeah. When I was in college, I took a public health seminar and my professor said that the US is a first world country superimposed on a third world country.
0: Yeah. I want to say if you leave most metro areas, once you get I want to say most, most of the country, because I wanted to be kind and say, you know, south of D.C., but I can think of a lot of places where there's endemic poverty. Um, you know, there's outhouses in a lot of places. There's outhouses that haven't been fully filled in, and that's a big process. Because if you don't do that, then you wind up getting, like, um, hookworm coming around. And I've seen a lot of these places, and it is it is more racialized, and it is more—I it mean, it's poverty, basically. But poverty poverty becomes racialized, too. I've been lucky enough that i lived in decent decently developed areas within america but i've also like i I don't know i've straddled a lot of fences where i've worked a lot of blue-collar work i've lived around a lot of blue-collar people you know and and that's not to say that these people are different but their life is really different if you're like a bricklayer versus if you're a, a physician you know like i used to get on the metro and see all these MDs going up to Bethesda and, and like they were, it was like a fashion plate where all of them went to outdress each other. First
1: <laughs> I remember one yeah. dude I,
0: uh, I normally hang out with, he was talking about how like COVID was great for him because he he's one of these dudes from El Salvador. He's been here for like 20 years, he's got kids, you know, he's living in this area and he, he lives here because it, it's expensive. He's not going to buy a place here, but they have great schools, right? So he works these two jobs, like six days a week, you know, 10, 15 hours a day and he's like COVID was great because it was like the first time I got a day off in like ten years. Because you know, six days a week for you know fifty two weeks a year is just gonna break it down. Um but he was like, oh my shoulders feeling better, my back's feeling better. I don't know. There's there there's there's some weird benefits of this whole thing, but I think long term it's gonna be something that's really gonna stratify America even further and have like a more fixed it's gonna create different classes of people based on your labor and then like how you come out of this. Because I bet you after the fact People who got this disease are gonna be considered those who had like a pre-existing condition. Like you were dumb, you were dumb enough or unlucky enough to get COVID, so uh, you don't get covered. And, and so it's gonna be like a push for something's gonna to have to be done because you're gonna have a lot
2: of people who are gonna be suffering from the after effects of this, you know, debilitating lung disease. And I think that's gonna be exactly how the the vaccination plays out. You know, you know, we have three, four pretty good candidates right now, and. Yeah, most of this is pending peer review. But let's say it, it, they, they all get approved tomorrow. Or the the Pfizer one, I think, is is an interesting kicks because the topic of freezer farms uh, came up, and you need to be able to store it at minus eighty C, which is cold as fuck. Okay, it's it's like it's colder than dry ice. We'll we'll keep it. Um, dry ice is like minus sixty seven, I think. Um, uh, the stratification of like class, race, is going to matter a lot because. If you need two shots for it, and so for the for the global population, you would need 16 billion doses total. Obviously, for the US, it'd be, what, 330 million times two, 600 million. Um, and so obviously, you can't produce that overnight. And when you do produce it, who gets it first? It sure as hell won't be the blue-collar neighborhoods. It sure as hell won't be the poor areas. The, some people, like, and I think Gavin Newsom, the, the governor of California, at least rightly said that, the first population that should be vaccinated is the healthcare population, um, like the people who are in the hospitals. And that's, that's true. But after that, what's going to happen? Like, are we all like, if there's 1 million doses that arrive in your city tomorrow, like who's going to get that with the existing, and these are from private uh, companies. And even if they're not from private companies, you know, the U S government has a horrible track record of doing this equitably. Uh, And so not only are these people going to get it, get the vaccine last a lot of them because of their class status, are doing jobs that leave them more exposed, uh, whether it be construction or anything that requires them to be out and about, like at the grocery stores, like your your um, grocery store, the people you are talking about earlier, Jules. Um, but also, I read into it uh, in the Nature paper that uh, the, the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, because they're both mRNA-based, the way they give you immunity is in like, the lower respiratory system. And so what happens is the upper respiratory system doesn't actually have full immunity against... The virus, and so you might still be a little bit contagious. And so, what happens when the rich people go out get vaccinated? It works for them, but they're still contagious to the poor people who don't, haven't yet got a chance to get it. Like that's gonna that's gonna worsen the inequality that we already have,
1: right? Because they're gonna go out thinking, "Oh, I have sterilizing immunity; like I'm fine." So they're gonna be out and about even more than they already are.
0: Yeah, it's Man, if we're lucky, they'll just stay in their, like, palaces and <laughs> not just leave us alone. Because I think that's, I mean, that's mostly what we all really want. Um I mean, at the, at the beginning of it, there was all that, like, I remember the beginning of it, there were stories of, like, all these people coming back from Italy for their fancy vacations, and they were coming back with coronavirus, right? And then, like, a couple of weeks into it, um, when New York was emptying out, all these people were going out to, like, their homes in the Hamptons and emptying out uh all the grocery stores buying like you know 50 bushels of carrots and like the sheriffs are like look we should blow up our bridges and just keep these fucking people out of here and <laughs> then um, I started seeing like stories of like all that was being done on like these weird um I don't know if you've been to Miami but Miami is like the height of what America is it's like you you go to Miami Gardens Hialeah and there's like working class like poor people you go like uh two miles east and like every mile Every block you get closer to the ocean further east, the wealth goes up by like 10 grand, right? And so by the time you make it out there to Miami Beach, you have like these little islands of super rich communities. And these are like literally like islands in the beach, um in the bay that will just like have, like, I think Fisher Island was one where they were flying in doctors from University of Miami to get their own private tests. And this is back when like tests were barely making it out into the public. And so these people were just soaking it up. I don't know. It's like they want to just be able to have all this to be able to prove, what, that they don't need to share it? And this is something for public health. Like, you're going to get it or you're not. It's not like knowing doesn't prevent you from getting it.
3: Right now, the CDC has been working on a distribution and allocation plan. And so there are committees that I'm not sure if they have like a final protocol yet, but it It's like one of the things that the CDC has been working on um, over the last couple months is deciding who gets the vaccine first. And it is going to be healthcare workers first, as far as the vaccine that's available first. The promising thing is that we do have so many candidates already in phase three, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. It's promising news that we've received in the last couple of weeks about their efficacy. There are challenges to their distribution. The hope is that healthcare workers will get it first. Essential workers will be somewhere next in line for that. I think that there's going to have to be a multi-vaccine solution to this because, like we mentioned, for the whole world, there's going to be 16 billion doses needed if it's a two-shot process. And most of the vaccine candidates in phase three are two-shot. Most of them are also intramuscular shots none of them are likely to give sterilizing immunity, which means you can still potentially be infectious even if you don't become symptomatically infected. My sense is that if all these clinical trials bear out, and we have like, I think, seven or eight candidates in phase three now, if most of them have some degree of effectiveness above 50% or so, by the time that we get these other vaccine candidates, if maybe the pfizer and moderna ones won't be the best vaccines in the end but they can get us there to that next point when these other later vaccines become approved and show efficacy as well that's what i'm hoping
0: right do you, do you think that like people can communicate this like effectively
3: I think that's the problem. Yeah, because I think even, you know, just in some casual conversations about these press releases that Pfizer and Moderna that has been in the news, people don't quite understand exactly what it means. You know, they're saying it's 95%, 94% efficacy for these two vaccines. I think some people were also concerned that the Pfizer one last week released results that it was 90% efficacy. And yesterday or today, there's a new press release that it was 95%. Did they just release this because Moderna just said it was 95%? So are they you know, trying to, like, raise the stakes again. The first analysis, when they said it was 90%, was of 90-something participants. The release today of 95% is when they finished the preliminary analysis of all 160 or 170 participants in the trial. That's why there was that discrepancy between their first press release and the second one. But yeah, I think, like I mentioned earlier, science reporting is not very effective in communicating how things work. But all these vaccine candidates, they have different ways of delivering the spike protein into your body, but they're all trying to get to the same result in the end, which is the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein so that your immune system will respond to it and produce antibodies. I think that's what's promising to me about these different vaccine candidates. They are all trying to do the same thing. Pfizer and Moderna may have the earliest results, but it seems to me that these other vaccine candidates have a good chance of having a good result too, if they're trying to do the same thing and effective at it.
2: And Michelle, do you want to briefly define what the 95% number means? Because I mean, the FDA also early on released a statement saying, look, if it's even above 50% effective, we'll do it. Um, And so like, how how promising is 95%? I think it'd be useful to define that.
3: Yeah, efficacy, it's a calculation where you're looking at the difference between your unvaccinated population and your vaccinated population pretty simple calculation. The Moderna one the other day, I think they said there was 95 patients. I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I think some people were confused reading this too. So Moderna's trial had over 30,000 participants. And of those 30,000 participants, so far, they've had 95 of those participants develop COVID. They did an analysis of those 95 participants, and they found that 90 of them were in the arm that uh, received placebo. And five were in the arm that received the vaccine candidate. To calculate efficacy, you're going to look at the difference between those two populations. So it's 90 divided by 95 minus 5 divided by 95. That's unvaccinated minus vaccinated. And you take that figure and divide it by 90 over 95, which is unvaccinated again. And that's where they came up with that. It's 94.444 percent which is rounded up to 95%. And so that's what those numbers mean. Something to keep in mind is once it actually does, assuming that it gets approved and gets used in the general population, vaccine effectiveness is likely going to be lower than that because that's where you look in how things are actually rolled out in the general population and in the distribution. We've mentioned that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines require super cold storage. If during the transport, any of these vaccines um, are not transported at their ideal temperature the RNA might not be as stable and maybe the vaccine that someone receives will not be as effective. But even then, a 90 to 95% efficacy is promising for pretty good effectiveness once it's rolled out in the general population.
2: Yeah, and what's heartening is the the Moderna one, for some reason, is stable at 4 C's. that's just like regular fridge temperature for up to 30 days. Um, Pfizer's is the one that has to be at negative 80 the whole time. I'm guessing it has to do, I didn't look into it, but it it has to do with the formulation of how the mRNA itself is stored. Because, I mean, RNA, so DNA to RNA to protein, right? Uh, RNA is like the the recipe of DNA's cookbook. RNA is super unstable. There's like trace amounts of the enzyme that that chews it up is like, everywhere it's really hard to keep it stable uh, but i'm guessing they have some sort of packaging because the formulation itself is like a proprietary thing they have probably some way of keeping that uh stable either it's binding to something that's hard to chew up or, or something so i mean that that one is a little bit more promising but yeah the negative 80 thing would be uh, yeah transportation that's that's really difficult you could ship it on dry ice but because dry ice is not quite at minus 80 you can only like open the box like twice a day or something
3: and they're, they're only selling it in, um, I think it's something like 475 or something doses fit in the box. So you can only order that quantity. You know, this is goes back to that multi-vaccine approach where I think really big institutions, big hospitals and big cities that are going to need to distribute very large amounts of vaccine, they may be the ones that get the Pfizer vaccine because one, they can afford it. And two, they have that number of healthcare workers that they need to vaccinate. Whereas the Moderna one might go to smaller towns because it has a little more flexibility in it's cold chain transport. I don't think it's like a complete barrier. It's definitely a challenge, but I think this is part of what hopefully like, you know, our CDC workers have been working on is this distribution plan and how it's going to work out.
2: Yeah. The the last bit of optimism I'll add here um, is that there's been some questions around like, well, mRNA vaccines have are, are basically unproven. There's not been a large-scale disease that's been um, wiped out or been significantly affected by mRNA vaccines because they're they're pretty new. mRNA is messenger RNA. And that's, that's true. It hasn't been affected yet. However, a lot of these other methods, so whether it's an inactivated virus or it's like the spike protein produced itself, I mean, they have to be produced via uh, living cells. And so that's how some of these like antibodies are produced. It's a really slow process. And like cell culture sucks. It's very variable. Um, it's very expensive. It's hard to scale up. The mRNA vaccines can be made entirely in vitro, which means outside of a living cell. You can just have them um, in what we call IVTT reactions. is, is one way of doing it, uh, or just chemical synthesis. IVTT is just like in vitro, transcription and translation. So turning the DNA into the RNA into the protein. Um, in this case, you're just going to stop at the RNA. Um, so like you can scale that up way more easily. Than you could if it was just like protein production, and I mean that that scale up itself like this is where like I hate to say anything good about Pfizer, but uh, because
0: they, because
2: they are a large company because they have like created tons of shit before they have infrastructure that can scale up more easily. Um, but for a company like Moderna, they have to partner with this other I forget who is the contractor to help scale up, and like I'm not gonna tell you where I work, but I work in a biotech company that involves trying to scale like small scale things up to, to large-scale industrial scales just from a building the actual engineered bacteria and b just producing the product oh it's a challenge it's super super difficult and so yeah like if we cannot roll it out in a large enough dose at first no matter which one wins if let's say there's only one wins that's going to be a challenge for all the reasons that all of you just mentioned um and also just like freaking compliance, like, like we were saying. Hopefully everyone would do what Jules is saying, like, all rich people just stay the fuck at home and you're like nice villas and stay, stay away from the rest of us. Uh, but unfortunately, that's probably not going to happen.
0: I don't even think they need to stay at home per se, but like practice that discipline. Like that's <laughs> the one thing. Um, so I talked to some of my family in Haiti and like there's a lot of problems in that country. One of the strengths is that there's centralization of some power, but what you see is like everyone has a mask. You know, when there were like protests going on a couple months back, you had people setting fires but wearing a mask.
1: (laughs) Very, like,
0: they understand that there's like a benefit to having community health. And it also was reflected from a lot of the practice because, you know, they had a cholera outbreak not five years ago. They had that earthquake where a lot of people had to have like a sense of community and unity, what, 10 years ago? I don't think we have that here. What we do, it's very superficial. And so I'd like to see that kind of communicated that like this needs to be a community small community, large community effort. And it's going to be more than just taking shots and taking pills. It's going to be like taking this thing really seriously, whether you believe it or not.
3: Yeah, because like we said, it's going to take some time to roll out this vaccine. Not everyone's going to be able to get it first. People can't treat it as a magic bullet or like the end point. There are a lot of steps to take place before, before then. And I think even like the viewing of this vaccine development as a race is very American because these vac- vaccines are all trying to do the same thing. We know it's difficult to produce so many dosages and distributing it to everyone who needs it. So, if there are multiple companies and multiple producers who can reach that same endpoint, that's better for everybody. That's actually something the world is doing on a world level since it's a global pandemic, but the US is not participating in it's a program called Covax. The world recognizes that If you eradicate COVID in your country, that's not going to help if you have global travel and someone brings it back from another country where they were not able to get the vaccine. So it's better for everybody if we can distribute an effective vaccine to as many people as possible. And so this COVAX program is one where countries with fewer resources can buy into this cooperative, basically, you know, it, it can be pretty risky to invest in a vaccine that might not work. So every country that buys into this program is going to be allocated a certain percentage of whatever vaccine it is that does end up working and that, that is taking part in this program. The US is one of the only like major players in the world that's not taking part. Diana and I were talking about how It's really strange that these really new vaccine technologies are the ones being advanced in the West, and it really makes us wonder, like, why? It may be, you know, these scientists are just trying to advance this new technology instead of thinking about what will work best. On the other hand, these RNA vaccines can be produced much more quickly, so maybe that was their rationale, I think there's case to wonder, is that really why or is there some other motive?
1: I mean, from what I know, being in research a really long time, I feel like it's one of those situations where it's like kind of seen as a win-win, but it's mostly because the guy who <laughs> is running that lab wants to make a lot of money off of it. Yeah. It's an issue the way that biotech is structured too. There a lot of research, a lot, a lot, a lot of money goes into all of these drugs, into like every like new drug or like new vaccine development. I don't think vaccines are even really profitable. So like most companies don't focus on them as at all. You know, it's only like the big companies or new startups like Pfizer's huge and Moderna's like a new guy, um, new player who would even be doing this work and because so many drugs fail like for whatever reason like there's a lot of loss and that has to be recuperated primarily by superstar drugs so like you know that erectile dysfunction one
0: The little blue pill
1: yeah. <laughs> what was that called again? Uh, I can't
0: remember. Stanfield. It's in my head. I, I, can, I can't spit it out. But yeah, I know that that's one of those things where Viagra, that's it. Viagra, right. that's it. Yeah. It's <laughs> like yeah. a blood pressure medication, but they showed that it like got you to a uh, tumescence.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. What they found in the clinical trials was that um, the men who took them, they said it wasn't effective, but they wouldn't send the pills back and they wouldn't say why and then eventually (laughs) people found out why and they were like oh my god so that became like a block it's a blockbuster right so like the profits that they get from that blockbuster will be used to fund all of these other drug developments um that have like you know a 90 90 percent chance of failing that's just how like companies are set up so it's like if there's an opportunity to get one of these blockbuster drugs or vaccines or whatever, you know, just like some product that can be sold to a lot of people, uh, hopefully long term, you know, like statins are another one, Prozac. They will go for that because that is how their company stays alive and profits, you know, profits their shareholders and grows.
0: Those are like lifestyle drugs, right? Like those are.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh-huh
0: you have to get these pills to pump you up rather than like not eating a bunch of red meat and you know chain smoking or, you know, like that's cool.
1: Yeah. The mental health drugs, people really like to make those because they are chronic, you know, they are for a chronic condition that a lot of middle-class people and above have so they can afford them. The DSM-5, the giant manual that um, is like the Bible for psychologists, that's like 70% funded by pharma companies. That's kind of the reason why like antidepressants are being pushed as the new normal. I think it's (laughs) like, that's my suspicion, you know? And it's like, it's partly quote unquote, like public health benefit, but I think it's mostly about profit.
0: There's a term that is, that really describes like the sense of ennui from having too much comfort where instead of you doing something that's very productive and fruitful for like your own growth as a person that leads to bigger things like you know let's say you learn how you learn a new language you're able to go to a new land you're able to new, meet new people form deeper friendships with you know different cultures right that's something that's very good as opposed to you just had a a very filling meal or you had a massage, like these disposable things. And if your life is full of all these like comfortable, disposable things, you aren't building a deeper, fuller life. And so you wind up having, I hate to say like a more vapid existence, but it it can lead to that sort of existence. And so like these drugs fill you in when you think that all these things or minor experiences should fill you in.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a cultural issue too. It's like an issue with American culture, which is like so (laughs) commoditized and vapid and it's full of comforts, but there's really transactional and shallow relationships and you don't really form like the deep connections with community that humans have evolutionarily been driven to have. And I think that plays out in how mental health is, how like the drug companies. I mean, it's all it's all connected, you know.
2: Diana, you and me having been in the, the bio research space, I mean, a lot of times, even in PhD programs, uh, not even in, especially in PhD programs, you know, people want to go into industry where they want to go. They want to go to the pharma companies for like these like nice cushy lifestyle, right? Knowing damn well what the pharma companies do. Like they make these lifestyle drugs. They go for they the IP race because... They need to patent it and sell it for a fuck ton of money so they can, you know, profit off this drug for years to come. Versus finding a cure to the ailment, which is what basically a vaccine is in some some respects, right? Trying to wipe it out and then you don't ever need it again. Hopefully, we know that's a thing. That's not a very like doesn't take a lot of like deep analysis to realize, like, oh, that's fucked up. That's a that's a profit motive, and yet a lot of people in the field want to go to one of those companies to work for, and that's kind of the, the sign that, that that you sort of made it. I mean, there's so much, like even now, right? Like one of the first drugs that was touted as something that could fight COVID, remdesivir, right? It's coming from Gilead. Mm-hmm. Gilead's another giant in the biotech space. That drug was researched with taxpayer money, and Gilead is, gonna, is like trying to charge up the ass for it. I mean, like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty blatant. It's not that, and it's not surprising, right? It's pretty blatant. It's not surprising. And back to the whole like, oh... I forgot what she called it, Michelle. But the initiative from all the companies or all the countries to buy into this program, so that they'll get equal distributions of vaccine, regardless of how much input they had to to the research and to the development of the vaccine. I mean, the U.S. of course, we don't have. We're so far from universal healthcare that I mean, there's no discussion of like, okay, who cares who if Moderna wins or Pfizer wins. The likelihood of it being free is super low. I mean, the Moderna one, I believe, too, was also – correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that one was also developed with with the help of quite a bit of taxpayer money, and it's not going to be free.
3: It is. Yeah. And Dolly Parton.